the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. Thank you very much. Eamon Gavin Dowd is back for another edition of In Our Defence, wherein Gavin tells us all about a little legal nugget from Irish history, something which on the face of it may seem like an oddity, but but which has uh, ramifications for all of us today. We have recently covered the three-stripe row between Adidas and O'Neill's and whether there is any uh, legal standing to the uh, uh, the old uh, schoolyard finders, keepers, losers, weepers rule. Uh, this week, Gavin, we are talking about what? Something much more serious. Uh, but I think listeners are going to find this really, really interesting and it'll open maybe a window into a world they weren't aware of. Listen, lucky us, Kieran, that we're not doctors and that working in, in media, it's never a life and death scenario. But this case just goes to show the pressures of being in an emergency scenario where someone's life is at stake. So our story starts in the Coombe Hospital. It's 10 a.m. It's September 2006. And the reason I mentioned the time, because the chronology is important here. Now, Miss Kay, as she's known in the case, is a woman from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and she's just given birth. Now, immediately afterwards, unfortunately, she, she suffered a massive hemorrhage, and she's lost 75 to 80% of her blood. Oh, gosh. And she's at risk of dying in a few hours. Now, a blood transfusion is necessary to save her life, but there are two big complications here. First of all, Mrs. K doesn't speak English and she's speaking to the doctors through an interpreter who's not a professional interpreter, who's just her friend. And her friend's first language is Portuguese and she even admits that she doesn't really understand the medical terminology in English. Secondly, and the bit that adds the real complication is that she's a Jehovah's Witness. Now, if you know anything about Jehovah's Witnesses, you'll probably know that they believe receiving blood is against God's will. So the, you know, the they will point blank refuse a blood transfusion, even if it means that they're mm. going to die if they don't get it. So the master of the hospital, who was worried about her and was worried about her child's welfare, the child she'd just given birth to, went straight to the high court three hours later. We're, she now, wasn't, at what, we're now one o'clock. Is so it? we're one o'clock. He goes down to the high court, gets in a taxi, nips down the keys. Uh, she wasn't present at the hearing, but in the hearing... On his own, he, he speaks to the judge, he explains the situation, and he gets an order for her to be sedated and for her to be transfused against her will. Okay. okay. So then 2.30 comes around, he comes back to the hospital, and he says, here's a sheet of paper with an order allowing me to transfuse you even if you don't want it. Yeah. And they transfuse her. So essentially, this saves her life. And it, you know, she's healthy afterwards, her child is healthy afterwards, but she sues the state because she says, this is an assault on me. I didn't consent to the transfusion and I should have gotten notice at the very least of this order okay. in the high court. Um, so essentially, she's suing the state and the hospital for saving her life. Okay, so what are the, the legal issues then that the court are examining? Well, there are two issues. Now, there are, there are two ways of approaching it. One is the messy way. One is the easier way. So the messy way is where you talk about Miss Kay's right to life and her right to practice her religion and then the child's right, her child that she'd just given birth to, mm. uh, that child's right to be raised by parents. But it's very hard when you're weighing up different rights. It's very hard to know which right should prevail and you know where to draw the line, essentially. Mm. So the easier approach that the court took was the question as to whether or not she actually had mental capacity to decide whether or not she should get right. the transfusion. Right, interesting. Uh, is she, does she have the cognitive ability to make the decision to refuse treatment? 
she's just given birth. She's lost eighty percent of her blood. Kieran, is this somebody who can who can make such a an important decision about herself? So. If you don't have capacity, it means you either, you know, don't understand the information the doctors give you, uh, you don't believe the information the doctors give you, or you're not in a position where you can weigh up the different options and make Mm. a proper choice. Now, there's a difference between making a decision which is irrational now, uh, and, uh, you know, completely misunderstanding information. So Dr. Peter Boylan, who uh, is, you know, an eminent yeah. and well, well-regarded uh, consultant in Ireland and has been in the media many times speaking about various different things, he gave evidence to the court and he said the patient wasn't making rational decisions. Because you'd, you'd assume in a life or death scenario that the rational decision would be to go for life, yes, to yes. preserve life. But it's not about whether or not the person was making rational decisions. It's about whether or not they actually understood what they were being told by the people, doctors. People are perfectly entitled to make irrational decisions. Exactly, exactly. We, we, we do it on a daily basis, some oh, might say. Uh, exactly, exactly. Some of us more than others, perhaps. But yes, uh, the law allows people to make their own decisions as long as they're acting within their free will yes. and they have the capacity to make the decision. So they looked at the evidence here and there were a few things which suggested she didn't have the capacity to make the decision. First problem was she'd gone to the hospital and she had told them that she was Roman Catholic. And it was only at the last minute when they said they suggested the possibility of a blood transfusion that she said, "Actually, no, I'm a I'm a Jehovah's Witness, uh, and I can't take a blood transfusion." So she hadn't told them the truth about her religion, which mm. had made things very difficult. Um, and she then claimed in court afterwards she had been a Jehovah's Witness since 1995, and her father was actually a senior member of the the Jehovah's Witness congregation in in the Congo. Mm. Um, but she claimed that because of her asylum and immigration application for whatever reason she didn't want to disclose that she was Jehovah's Witness. Uh, She also told the hospital at the time that her husband was in the Congo and was uncontactable at the time, which would have meant that this child who was three hours old at that point, if she had passed away, would have had no family in the state, would have no one to look after it Mm. and I assume would have had to have gone straight into state care. So they were worried about the welfare of the child as well. But this wasn't true either. Her husband was in Ireland. In fact, her husband had been in that very hospital room with her just 24 hours before. But again, because he was concerned that he was in the state without a visa and that he might be arrested, he didn't want. she didn't want to disclose to the hospital that okay. he was in Ireland. So there were two, thing, two pieces of information that the hospital only found out after they had transfused her were untrue. Okay, although neither of those necessarily point towards her mental capacity to make a decision. This is true. This is true. Um but there were a couple of other factors like the suggestion that when they said to her um you must be transfused to save your life, she said, "No, no, no, there's there's an alternative remedy you can give me." And she actually suggested this. She suggested that she be given Coca-Cola, tomatoes, eggs and sugar. She said these are all important uh, for the body. They give you energy. They give you iron. And she says, this is what a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses would use in the scenario now. But again, this was evidence that suggested that somebody was maybe, didn't have their full capacity and didn't have their full wits about them at the time. Interestingly though, when she was in court later, she was still you know, proclaiming the benefits of the Coca-Cola and tomato and eggs uh, cure. So there was that factor. There was the factor that her first language wasn't English. It was possible that when her friend was translating the information to her, it wasn't coming through to her clearly. 
Um, and as as I said, uh, there was no traceable next of kin, and there was no family members in the state. So, so you, you had all of these factors coming together, and the court what ultimately decides she didn't have capacity. She didn't have capacity. Okay. It was an emergency situation as well. It was as you know as stressful a situation can get for those in the medical profession, I guess. And the judge, Justice Lafoy, did note at the end that ultimately this was a situation of her own doing because. If she had declared to the hospital that she was Jehovah's Witness at the start, they would have been able to make accommodations and there are procedures that they could follow. But Mm. it was so last minute that those avenues weren't open to them. Uh, So she had, to a certain extent, uh, worsened her own uh, situation. So she was unsuccessful in this case. Um, It's interesting because by making that decision, the court got to avoid the trickier legal questions, which which would have been weighing up her right to life, her right to a kind of religious observance, uh, you know, the, the right of her child. Um, you know, n- not not again, as you say, to borrow your own language, like not to be facetious about it, but like from a legal point of view, that would have been the more interesting conundrum for the court to have to d- to deal with. Definitely, definitely. But when you, you're opening a whole can of worms there <laughs> yes. and it's really hard to balance up when you have two, you know, equally valid competing rights, it's very hard to know which should come first. So they did take uh, the more... I guess, straightforward approach. But ultimately, from the evidence, I think a lot of people would say this was somebody who was very ill at the time and probably didn't have their full mental capacity. So in terms of, I mean, the the, the import of this case, um, it's hard to say, really, is it? I mean, if somebody, if there was a Jehovah's Witness in the exact same situation, but, you know, they were English speaking and they had been much clearer from the start and they found themselves in this situation... Uh, the, the court hasn't dealt with it they, 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 and they might be forced to at some point in the future Sure, sure but the key thing with all medical treatments it doesn't matter if you make a rational decision No As long as you have the capacity to make a decision but there are other cases that Jehovah's Witnesses have, have So, so that's, the, that's, the, I suppose that's the the legal precedent the important precedent here was that Exactly That idea you Listen, you don't have well, the, irrational decisions are not evidence of incapacity Exactly. Uh, not in and of themselves. No. Okay. Uh, there, there have been other cases where Jehovah's Witnesses have, have been involved and also involving tr- blood transfusions. So, for instance, say somebody stabs a Jehovah's Witness and causes them some harm and they go into hospital and the hospital says the exact same thing. We can give you a transfusion. It'll save your life. Yeah. And the Jehovah's Witness says no. Should the person who stabbed them ultimately be responsible for their death if they could have gotten a transfusion to save their life? Uh, again, this is kind of a, a messy legal issue. If the stabbing, well, the question is, was the stabbing going to kill them anyway? I guess, and the court has said in a in a case called Blau uh, that the stabbing was the operative cause of their death when they mm. did die. Uh, and ultimately, you take your victim as you find them. Um, you don't get to choose as someone who stabs another person uh, what yeah. kind of course of medical treatment that they should take. It, it would be messy if the court found otherwise, because in that case, then you, you'd be, you know, you, you'd have the stabber claiming that you know, if ambulance, ambulance response times were better, the person's life might have been saved. So yeah. I, sh- I should only be done for manslaughter. Sure. Really, you know what I mean? It, yeah, it, yeah. it gives or a bit assault. of it gi- a minor assault <laughs> at the end of the day. You know, no, it does. It gives a privilege otherwise yeah. to to people who who commit, uh, you know acts of aggression and stuff so these are interesting moral and legal questions um, about you know people's free will and ultimately where the law should should intervene well listen a fascinating uh, story before we go our legal question of the week uh, what powers does the Irish president actually have Karen I wish some of the last presidential candidates in the last election knew the answer to this question because I I think and I I suspect some of the candidates in the next presidential election as well this is true this is true (laughs) well I mean a lot of the, the the 
the president's powers are somewhat ceremonial and are acted on the advice of the government. So the, the president can appoint the uh, dissolve the doll, can appoint the Taoiseach on the advice of the uh, government, um, can sign bills into law, can give an address to the houses of the Oireachtas. But one of the, the most significant powers is the power to refer laws to the Supreme Court. So if a law comes to Michael D. Higgins' desk and before signing it into law, uh, he has the option with advice from the Council of the State, which are his kind of co- advisory committee, mm. to send it over to the Supreme Court and they can decide whether or not it's constitutional. So you can imagine if you had something like this in the US, given the, the politics involved in the Supreme Court there, how much of a political weapon mm. uh, this uh, power could be. All right, that's the, the most significant uh, power the pro- president probably has. Uh, Gavin, listen, thanks, but what are we talking about next week? Well, Kieran, uh, we'll be talking about how a squatter has a legal right to own somebody else's property after Ooh. a certain period in time. I think this will get people vexed. Oh, when this, they hear will, the law. this certainly will. Listen, I look forward to it. Uh, Gavin Dowd, pleasure as always. Gavin will be back at the same time next week. You can listen back to all previous editions of In Our Defence. They're up on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud. Uh, stay with us. We'll have all your business news next. The Hard Shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at nissan.ie.